In this episode, I have a special guest, Hiroki Kiveni, and we discuss the lineage and story of Reiki, how we can be sensitive and aware when it comes to spiritual appropriation of healing work, how being transgender guides their spiritual path, and the importance of the ancestors and oral histories in the healing process. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Embody Podcast, a show about remembering and embodying your true nature, inner wisdom, embodied healing, and self-love. My name is Candace Wu, and I'm a holistic healing facilitator, intuitive coach, and artist sharing my personal journey of vulnerability, offering meditations and guided healing support, and having co-creative conversations with healers and wellness practitioners from all over the world. Welcome back, everyone. It's great to have you. Before we jump into the episode with Hiroki, I'd like to say a special shout out to all of my clients that are out there. I want to thank you all because part of the work that we do together, the investment that you put in, also supports me in being able to do this work with the podcast to be able to offer more interviews and healing experientials. It's all made possible by the uh, income support that I get from working with people one-on-one, as well as people in relationships, whether that's a couple or a polyamorous relationship. I really appreciate you so much, all of you out there, and you give me inspiration for more podcasts as well. If you want to learn more about my one-on-one work or couples and relationship work with people, feel free to go to my website at candicewu.com. And now let's jump into the episode. Hiroki Kiveni is someone that I just felt charmed by right from the beginning. I really enjoyed speaking with them and exploring ideas about how transgender identity, race, ethnicity all come into play in healing work. And in this episode, you'll get a taste of that. Hiroki is a fourth-generation Japanese-American and certified Reiki master, and their mixed-race background as East Asian and Irish informs the work that they do. Hiroki is the founder of Dragonfly Intergenerational Healing Services, which is based on community and familial love. Their work is inspired and rooted in a decade of community organizing and building with queer and trans people of color on the West Coast. What I learned early on was that Hiroki believes that the healing work we do is influenced by our ancestors and has an intergenerational ripple effect on future generations. So you can see why they and I got along very quickly because we had a lot to talk about with healing through the ancestry. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. I'm so happy to have Hiroki Kiveni here today. Thank you so much for joining us, Hiroki. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. I have no idea where it's going to go today. But first, I would love to hear from you and give you the space to share who you are and what you do. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I feel like every time I answer that question, it changes a little because I think who I am changes often. But I guess right now I would say that my name's Hiroki and that I'm genderqueer and I'm Japanese, I'm Irish. I really care about history. And I really care about healing. And something I really hope I can do with my life is like somehow combine both those passions. 
And the practice I offer is called Dragonfly Intergenerational Healing Services. And within that practice, I try to combine both. Yeah, one of the things I like to do with clients, regardless of the healing modality, is like, how does you in the present and like your healing process impact past generations and future generations? And so that's something that a lot of healers have done with me and that I try to do with my clients really try to get people to like kind of like reflect not only on like why do I have this like relationship pattern that I'm not happy with like well how does that connect to your grandparents like or how does that connect to your community or like communities trauma like history with like imperialism or whatever like what does codependency look like you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. how these systems are part of larger systems of oppression or they're symptoms of larger things going on. And so that could be my background in sociology too, was like a lot about like just studying systems. But yeah, I hope that makes sense. So I I like combining um, energy healing like Reiki or like card readings like tarot or natal chart readings, meditation, whatever it is. I like supporting clients in those ways because they've really supported me and they're what I'm familiar with. Mm -hmm, That's lovely. It sounded like you support people in connecting with their histories, but also you were saying to the future and to future generations. How do you work with that? I love having a long view of history. And that's something I've learned from elders in different community spaces about like the work we're doing now will impact generations to come. And I think sometimes it can be really discouraging or feel really overwhelming everything going on like politically right now. But the more I understand history and like where we've come from, it like contextualizes what's going on. And so understanding that what we do in the present will impact future generations, whether it's like political engagement or whether it's your own like healing, which I think is like a form of political engagement because I feel like everything's interconnected. So like the healing you do will impact future generations, whether you decide to have children, whether you decide to be in community spaces, like how your sort of legacy would impact. Here, I'll just speak from personal experience. Sometimes it's hard to leave the house looking the way I do, like being gender nonconforming, people staring at me all the time. I think like knowing that 10 years from now, they, them pronouns and gender nonconformity stuff hopefully will be more socially acceptable or less like people will be more familiar with the terms at least. Like I think about the trans movement and how within the last five years, like mainstream media knows the word transgender, which is like huge. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think like 50 years from now, hopefully like when I'm super old, I can sort of, look back and like see how things were and then how things are 50 years from now and like be like okay like even though I feel uncomfortable like a lot of the times like going out in public and like you know I always have headphones in so I can't hear like street harassment or if it happens like you know like knowing that these actions I take now in the present I'm hoping me being myself will encourage other people to be themselves and have some sort of like ripple effect. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm getting this picture of you being who you are out in the world, no matter what is coming towards you, 
is trying your best to be yourself and that that does have an effect outwardly and that your hope is that down the line that that really has a change. Yeah, I I hope. I hope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's not, I don't do what I do like just because I was like, I want to change the world. That's not even why I like dress the way I dress. I just, I do what I do because that makes me feel the most comfortable in my body. Yeah. So that's why I do what I do. But if it has some sort of like political impact or like social impact, I feel grateful. And I think learning about history, I said my background's in sociology. It's also in ethnic studies too. I think learning about community organizing and just social movements in general among communities of color in the United States, I feel like it helps me self-reflect more about my gender identity. Yeah. And like the Mm -hmm. long-term impacts. Well, I was thinking about how your racial and ethnic background has been very important in your to you in your life and in who you are in who what you do with people and how your your fourth generation japanese american and you're also irish um, right. would you would you like to share a little bit about how this influences you and and how you see that yeah absolutely i feel like so much of like my coming out as like queer and like later as trans like that process was so much influenced by being a person of color. I grew up in the Midwest in Ohio and a big sort of drive to like leave the Midwest was actually not even the queer stuff because I was still like just grew up so religious. So I, I just didn't know a lot. Like I knew I was different, but I didn't really have language for it. But I knew racially I was different. And so I really wanted to learn about anything Asian, like specifically Asia, like not Asian American, but Asian. And so I was looking at programs outside of the Midwest and I loved visiting the West Coast. Like I loved it. And so um, there was a program in Seattle. I was doing Asian studies and I took a class called the Asian American Experience. And it was the first time I really like I had a professor who was also biracial, like Asian American. And it was just like an opening of so many doors that I didn't realize that I needed or that would be healing. So that sort of like drive towards like understanding racial and economic justice led me to organizing, which so many queer and trans people like just do. Um, So it was coming out as queer and later as trans really was in these like racial justice communities. And then the mixed race stuff came later. I feel like, like I always knew I was mixed and always talked about it. And I got lucky in Seattle that a lot of Japanese American organizing, most people were mixed race. And like, I never felt out of place. I think as I kept doing community work, I started to feel out of place the more I moved around because it became less mixed race and it became more monoracial. And so I just started seeing how my experiences were different. And so I would say about like when I was 24 is when I started doing more mixed race stuff, like trying to understand like, what does it mean to be a multiracial person and 
how does that connect to my healing? Like, what does that even mean? You know, feeling like you don't fully fit in anywhere you go. And then it really wasn't until the Trump election that I started trying to do like white ancestor healing work. So a lot of my 20s was about like my Asian ancestors and like healing around being Asian American in the US. And later and now in the present, um, I am trying to do both, like uh, healing both sides mm-hmm. and feels like coming into my queerness and transness was through communities of color. And then, yeah, the whole mixed race stuff and now white ancestor work, it, it came a little later. So when you you were saying the Asian American experience gave you an opening. That class, yeah. Yeah. What did you learn about that, about yourself? Oh my, yeah, absolutely. I think like the first time I really had to talk about being Asian American to my peers was when I was in fourth grade. We were learning about World War II and I shared that my family was part of the internment. And I remember the whole class like gasped and like everyone was staring at me. And like, I was just like, what's going on? And I remember like later in middle school, we would watch these like more, it was called the morning announcements or whatever. And it was like this history channel. And I think it was in my social studies class, my history class. That day was specifically about the internment. And I was like, I wanted to watch it, but my whole class was so loud. Everyone's talking, no one's watching it. And the teacher Mm. was like, if everyone keeps talking, we're turning off the TV. And I was like, I remember being like, guys, shut up. Like, I want to watch this. And of course, no one listened to me. And everyone keeps talking. And he turned off the TV. And I remember being like, damn it. Like, there was this piece of me that always wanted to learn about what does it mean to be Asian American? But it just like, wasn't gonna happen in Ohio. Or maybe it would have happened in Ohio, but maybe it would have to have been in the college setting. You know, it just, it wasn't going to happen in my like school system. Like that's just, no. Um, and so I think like taking that class that was specifically devoted to Asian American experiences. So Dr. Wong, like she started with Chinese American history, went into Japanese American and then went into Filipino American. And it was because of that class that I started volunteering at the Filipino American National Historical Society. It was like um, we had to do community work as a requirement for this class. And FONS, that's like the shortened version of the Filipino American National Historical Society. Working at FONS with Uncle Fred and Auntie Dorothy, I feel like I still take the lessons that they taught me so much of what I believe in and how I even practice energy healing. I think about the Cordovas and the work they do. Um, they did for uncle Fred, he passed away. Basically they started this organization devoted to Filipino American history, like archives. That was the first time I've been in archives, like people just documenting their history. First time I was around oral histories and they really encouraged me to learn about my heritage. Like they, feel like Uncle Fred was the first person to be like, learn your Japanese American history, learn your Asian American history. Like, I remember that was the first thing he ever told me was learn your Asian American history. And I was like, okay. And that led me to Japanese American work. That's why that class was so special is not only like in the classroom, but out of the classroom, like that internship at Fonz. And then like, even after the class was over, I would still go 
try to go at least once a month to visit uncle and auntie and just like talk to them, talk to them about their experiences, learn from them. That's how it changed my life was it was mainly my relationship with uncle Fred and auntie Dorothy Cordova. Mm, Wow. That sounds really powerful. I'm curious, what's one of the life lessons you still take with you? Um, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like so much of that class was a blur, but in a good way. Something that really moved me was something that Auntie Dorothy said once and why she preserved like Filipina American history. And she said she and Uncle Fred like learned their stories because she's like, I wanted to have self-worth. And I think when your stories are never recorded or when the TV's turned off because all your essentially white classmates aren't interested in learning about you. I remember like learning Asian American history in that class and like finally feeling like I had a place at the table. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I think that was probably one of the most important life lessons was like, learn your heritage, understand how you fit into this larger fabric of society. And like, for me, it just gave me this huge sense of self-worth and that I was an American because I think the internment, one of the big like woundings that happened was this belief that you're not an American. And that's really complicated too, because like, you know, we are settlers. If you're not Native American, you know, you're like a settler or you're West African and forced to be here without your consent. And so I think, you know, even me saying like, I am an American, I think it's really complicated. And I also also never felt like an American growing up. So I think taking that Asian American class was really transformative because I was like, oh, I am an American. I am part of American history. I'm just thinking about where to go from here because I'm interested in your family story. I'm not sure if you want to share it today or, or not. Yeah, I can share a little. Yeah, maybe just a bit of what you what you found is so restorative for your sense of worthiness. I think like growing up hating being Asian or Japanese American, like really internalizing racism, like looking in the mirror and being like, whoa, like I don't like who I see, like wishing, you know, I had blonde hair, wishing I had blue eyes, like all the things or being taught to like my European features, but not my Asian ones. I think I kind of like went the pendulum opposite when I was in college. I was like, oh my God, I I like, I can't even think about my white side. I like must think about my, I need to love myself. And so I think by the time I was like learning my family stories was after college. So I had moved to California to be near my grandparents. And honestly, it was like a really disillusioning process because I learned just how screwed up my family is. And and it's not because like you're Asian American. <laughs> it's like just my family story was so like sad. And so mm-hmm. how do I say? It's like, I feel like there were like toxic patterns in my family that were only amplified because of larger white supremacist things. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't like we were like perfect. And then the war came. It was like, we were messed up. And then the war came and left oh. some water. And so okay. I think what was restorative about my family was I think I had put my family on this pedestal 
um, and my community on this pedestal and being like, oh my God, we're so resilient, you know, and we are like, we fucking are, but we're not perfect. And I, you know, I know we've talked in the past about like the importance of not putting, you know, groups or people or even an individual, like a mentor figure or spiritual leader the dangers of putting people or communities on pedestals of having all the answers. And so I think what was restorative about learning my family history was I like learned the good, the bad and the ugly and the beautiful. And I think once I could sort of like see the complexity of my family legacy, it helped me understand me and my complexities. And so I think like, even though at first it was a disillusioning process, it also was restorative because I feel like that's a reality for most people is like, you probably, there's a reason why a lot of families have secrets, like they're not great. (laughs) And so like, once you learn the secrets, and once you learn why the silences are there, then the healing can happen. Because I feel like it's more painful to not know. And then once you know, even if it's painful, you can finally work through it because it has a name. Mm-hmm. What I'm grappling with is the spiritual experience versus the human experience. And mm. not that they're different <laughs> and not yeah. that they're not connected or one, but seeing it from multiple levels, seeing the experience from multiple levels. So my own experience of being Chinese American and I experienced a lot of being silent when I was younger. And I thought I internalized that as just me, that I was shy and that I didn't have anything to say. And I was, I felt I was stupid. I didn't really have anything to contribute. I had no idea that a large deal of my experience probably related to me being Chinese American in an area that was almost all white. And as I started to learn more about that, I also learned in my ancestry why there was so much silence. Yeah. Just to touch in on it, just looking at Chinese culture with like Tiananmen Square, when people spoke up for something believed they believed in, they got killed. And yeah. women um, got their own silencing and agreed to their own silencing in different ways. Uh, that also included the body, like being having their feet wrapped and being smaller. And so yeah. I just, I lived this experience. But then I also felt like the same themes that I was experiencing so painfully in that avenue related to themes of my soul, um, just being small, the experience of being small or being unworthy and, and feeling like I just deserve to be silent or that I deserve to not exist at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I was working through some past life experiences of, and I don't really know that these are the truth, but there's a resonance that feels like at some point I was I was a healer and go figure, right? And um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was very more like witchcraft and taboo. And all, I, I feel like I was also a shaman. I feel like I was a variety of different healers that, in that time wasn't so respected. And if I was myself with all of that, then violence would be there, would be had. That's just my feeling. And 
the reason I'm speaking to it is it's helped me just clear out some of that so that it's not imprinted in my daily experience now and in who I am and what I choose to do now. And I'm I'm curious for you if you've had that sort of experience where or how you've thought about your spiritual self or the spiritual perspective with all of who you've learned you are in your oral history and in your ethnic history. Yeah. You know, I've only done one past life thing. It was like a past life regression therapy session. And it was funny because like, I couldn't see anything, (laughs) but I felt things. Yeah, And I, I like, it felt like, because like one of my friends who did it, they were, they could like see everything and they even felt their own death and like all these things. And for me, like while I didn't see a life, I saw like kind of look like a, like a movie picture, if that makes sense. It was like, I saw all these different things I have experienced in my present life. And you know, when you have that deja vu feeling when you're somewhere and you're like, Huh, like mm-hmm. this is really familiar. And it's like, I wonder how I'm connected to this. Um, so it was interesting. Like my past life lesson actually was to focus on the present and to know that I'm loved. Like mm-hmm. those were my two lessons. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean like, what about past life for you? But just how do you look at the, from your spiritual perspective? Oh, how do you all look? Yeah. yeah. All of what people and you experience mm. in your eth- like rich ethnic heritage and what I don't know maybe it's too vague of a question <laughs> no, it's not. no 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 it's not I was just thinking that's all I was kind of quiet yeah um I think like whenever I do work with like people who are shamans or people who are energy workers healers all of that when they talk to spirits who are like watch over me there's kind of like a common theme. It's like that I have like third eye stuff going on and that like I'm super like connected to ancestors and that they are present. Um, and then the other thing that people say is like mm. have weird throat stuff. Like I can't speak, which is funny because like we're both talking about silences on a podcast, but right, that's my own stuff that I'm working on is like, being able to name things. Um, and then the other thing they tell me is that my root is really like my sense of home and community. While like I do have like strong community roots and senses of like interconnectedness, like my sense of home is always kind of in flux. And I think it has a lot to do with how much I've moved. Mm. So I think spiritually how that all relates is like, huh. How does that all relate? I feel like ancestor work for me, spirit stuff is always my relationship with different ancestors. That's like my spirituality Mm -hmm. and how I connect with them, whether it's through like reading a book or like a conversation or learning a family story from a relative. It like feeds a part of me that's not physical if that makes sense. And I feel like mm-hmm. for me, that's spiritual. I think when I was a kid growing up, very like religious, sometimes I would sit in the church, like after the church service was over and everyone went to get donuts because that's all churches, right? Um, so I'm like sitting in the church 
alone because everyone's like getting donuts and coffee. And I remember just like feeling at peace because it wasn't about the service because the service was the same every Sunday. Well, the sermon was different, but it was about feeling connected to love, feeling connected to unconditional love. And as I got older and came out twice, I had to reimagine what that would look like because the real many religious institutions aren't supportive of queer trans people. And that ended up looking like my relationship with my ancestors. And that feels good. It feels good to like feel unconditional love. And that was what my past mm-hmm. life regression session was about was that I am loved mm-hmm. and then I'm lovable. And so um, I do feel loved. I do. And I hope to sort of carry that with me wherever I end up. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. And for asking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So one of the topics that you and I have been interested in is cultural appropriation and the appropriation of healing modalities that I take part in um, and that the world does, right? Would you share your definition of cultural appropriation and specifically in healing work? Sure. I guess my personal definition would be like an unwillingness to learn, like an unwillingness to learn from the communities who've created these practices. Yeah, I feel like that's the core of cultural appropriation is this like, I'm going to take something and I'm not going to take the time to get to know you. Mm. I feel like that's, cultural appropriation for me anyway. For me, also to add to that, just like taking a practice and taking it out of its context as well, like the the roots yeah. of maybe where and why it's important and making it important for different reasons. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, it's so hard to talk about because there's so many types of appropriation, of cultural appropriation. So I wanted to say it in a really simple way because it's so huge that taking, and like you said, taking out of context too, without a willingness to learn, I feel like is appropriation. Mm, It's like a form of disrespect. And I think it's a form of spiritual disrespect too. Someone was talking about, you know, going to a museum um, in Britain. I think the museum is, I forget the name, but basically it's like it houses all these different spiritual artifacts that were taken from communities that Britain colonized from countries, you know? And this person was talking about how emotional of experience that was, like when they left, you know, like just how it felt and how they cried. And because a lot of the artifacts were taken because they were valuable to the cultures. And so usually they held spirits, you know, like they, these were mm-hmm. objects used in ceremonies and rituals. So they have a spiritual energy to them as well. Yeah. It was like, you took, you took a spirit. So I think, 
when that person, you know, when they shared that story with me, it, for some reason, I'm just thinking about it right now when we're talking about spiritual appropriation, like it's that, like, I'm going to take this from you without any thought of how it's going to impact you and how I'm not going to learn about you either. This is for me. Mm, That feels so painful. Yeah. It feels painful. And at the same time, I feel removed from, I'm not sure. The experience is that I feel removed from the immediacy of that taking. Yeah. That I don't even know then what I'm taking. And sometimes I have the feeling like if I, if I see spiritual objects or what I'm perceiving as someone using certain spiritual objects, like a drum, let's say, um, I, I actually feel a bit cautious. Like, I don't really know what I should be doing with that. And, or is it even my place? And so I just kind of wait and observe and see or try to learn from somebody if I'm that curious. But what's your experience with that? And I think a lot of people have those, that worry that like, or that sort of overwhelm that there's, there's such a richness to everything, but how do we yeah. even take it all in? And how do we even know if we're being disrespectful? Yeah, caution is like always, that's a great word to use. Cautiously observing. I love that. Absolutely. Because I think, you know, we're trying to heal parts of ourselves that we're longing for, for healing. But how do you even go about doing that when we live with, basically these histories of colonialism and slavery and genocide in this, you know, and I'm just talking about the United States. Like I'm not even talking about globally, the things that have happened. Like, I think it's for me, it's like a case by case. Like I get to know the healer. I build trust and relationship and I see how they practice and if that lands okay. And then I also try to like educate myself and I'm like, I practice Reiki but I feel like I'm still trying to grapple with Reiki history and learn it and understand it. And like, what does it mean to be a fourth generation mixed race, Japanese American practicing this spiritual practice from my people? And what does that even mean? And what does that look like? And the ways Reiki has been appropriated in so many ways that to the point that when I talk to people from Japan who grew up there, they're like, Oh, I thought that was a Western thing. You know, I even mean that I practice this practice that even Japanese people are like, wait, what? That's the Japanese thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of that? Just so people listening can understand from where you're speaking about this, because I think that's fascinating what you're saying that Japanese people aren't necessarily always aware that Reiki comes from Japan. Yeah, that made me really upset when I kept like running into that. I was like, wait, what? Or like talking to Japanese Americans who are like, oh, that's a white people thing. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> it's like oh no. Like, so it was like both Japanese Americans, Japanese. Like, I was just like, damn it. Like, you know, you finally think you've learned a healing tradition of your people. And then your people are like, that's not even ours. And we're like, what? Like, it's just it's a mess. And why it's a mess largely has to do with the internment and U.S. occupation in Japan after the war. So basically in the 
I want to say the mid 1800s. I need to like, see, this is me like not knowing the facts fully. But basically in the mid to late 1800s, there was a Reiki revival among some spiritual communities in Japan. And basically Reiki, like any sort of form of like energy healing, like I feel like all cultures have some type of like Reiki, like some type of energy healing practice. We even talked before, like Jesus even laid hands on people to heal. So I think Reiki is just specifically a Japanese type of energy healing that many cultures practice in their own specific ways. And so um, basically there was a revival of it in a way that like in Japan, the symbols that you learn in Western Reiki aren't as important. And there was this belief that like, we all have Reiki in us. That's what happened with this one person. He was like, I see, I need to do my fact checks. Like I need to learn his name. But basically there was someone named Usui who like, he learned about these practices from this, like he heard about this person and then he went even further and tried to adapt it to Western cultures. So in the 1920s, he came to Hawaii, he came to the United States and basically shared these attunement practices, shared Reiki. But in the 1920s and, you know, the early 1900s, there were tensions between the U.S. and Japan that just blew up is maybe the wrong word. That's probably really insensitive. It just like it went everywhere during the war. Um, so during the war, back to Japan and he basically was forced to use Reiki in the Imperial Army to like heal soldiers. And so Reiki started being used for war basically. So that's like a weird thing to wrap my head around. When I it was like very disillusioning because I like hate imperialism and I like hate the Japanese Empire. And I was just like, whoa, like using it on soldiers who are like just how the the comfort woman and just like I was like no nope. like when wait you know, so like they used that. it on soldiers more for for what purpose to heal them so they could keep fighting like injuries or spiritually or both probably because mm-hmm. Reiki was believed it could help heal like physical injuries like mm-hmm. quicker. And obviously you would like care for it in a physical way too, but Reiki helps the process. Some people use it nowadays to like help people who have cancer. Obviously, you would still go in for physical treatments, but you would also have this spiritual element that's supposed to help the physical healing process. And so Reiki became associated with war. And so Mm. by the time World War II ended, everything Japanese related in the United States is very taboo. So Reiki went away pretty quickly in the U.S., And in Japan, because it was associated with the war during U.S. occupation, it was outlawed. It was just banned. It's so so, interesting how parts get forgotten and the focus goes. Like, to me, it feels like it almost was forgotten that it was this daily healing practice or innate practice. And it became part of the war because there's so much focus on the war, I would imagine. Yeah. And then it became so paired up. And now it's being banned. Because it's powerful. And I think, I mean, it just shows you how any sort of spiritual practice can be used in any form. It's like, it can Mm -hmm. be used for good. It can be used for evil. So that was disillusioning too, because like for me, I 
do not respect like imperialism in any form, whether it's like people of color or white people, almost like don't fucking colonize people. Like what? Like for me, um, when I was like learning about Reiki being used for the Japanese empire, like for the war, I was like, whoa. You're also noting the things I remember you saying before to me that when you specifically had looked at your history and your ancestry and your culture, that there are things that are really positive and strengthening for you, but also that you grapple with. And that's part of the process for you. And so that it's just a really nice example of how you've grappled with Reiki as a practice that you use, as well as the history of it in, in Japanese culture. It's strange being part of a heritage that brutalized like different mm-hmm. people throughout Asia and the Pacific Islands. So there's that, but then also to be a part of a culture that was silenced and imprisoned in the United States. Yeah, it's something I really grapple with, honestly. And it's weird because my Irish side, my family's actually more recently immigrated from Ireland than from Japan which is also, I know, unusual for people who are half white, half Asian. Normally their white family's been here for many generations and Asian side is like more recent. And so on that side, I grapple with British imperialism in Ireland and then how colonialism impacted my Irish heritage, my Irish side, and then how Irish people in the U.S. at first were treated pretty terribly Um, And weren't always treated, like, how do I say, how the Irish became white eventually and benefit from white supremacy and just the level of, like, anti-Black racism and, like, you know, the Irish, like, led anti-Chinese movements. Like, it's weird having, like, two different cultures, either colonized or colonizer outside of the U.S. And then when they come to the U.S., how varying levels of privilege and oppression play out based on racial hierarchies in the United States. I know like when I tell the story of Reiki, it gets all over the place. So I'll just quickly sum up. But basically the war, it outlawed Reiki to the point that people don't even consider it Japanese. So it wasn't until like 70s, 80s, sort of this like spiritual movements um, of many white people trying to learn about people of color, basically people of color practices. And this one person from Hawaii, she like had learned Reiki from Usui's student in the 19, I want to say 30s. And then she like, obviously didn't practice in Hawaii. But during these like all these spiritual sort of, I don't want to say awakenings, because that is not the right word. But just like this drive of white people wanting to learn about Native American and Asian practices, you know, she came to the mainland and she started teaching people and charging them a lot of money to learn these practices. And so learning that too was also like, oh God, like another layer of like, you basically like hustled these white people for their money, which like at first I was like laughing about. I was like, oh my God, I love that. But then the other part was like, oh man, you like, capitalizing on like a spiritual practice like which is Mm. weird and so i'm pretty sure her last name is takata um i can't remember anyone's first name see this is my own stuff of needing to learn more about history and and i don't speak as an expert i just speak as myself um and what i've learned over the years 
But basically, she came to the US and based on her experiences of living in the US and like she even made it more adaptable for Westerners to learn Reiki more so Mm -hmm. than Asui did. Like she refined it in a way. And it was because of her that we know Reiki now because she brought it Mm -hmm. to the mainland. So after she passed away, because she had like told her 20 something students, like you need to charge people several thousand dollars to learn Reiki or it's not real Reiki. Um, basically probably the one Japanese American in this like group of people was like, Oh, we need to make it more affordable. Um, and her name was Iris. She's like, no, like we need to make Reiki accessible and affordable for people. So she started attuning people at a much lower rate because of these different iterations and like fine tunings of Reiki that and really, I want to say because of Japanese American women, women of color, that we still have Reiki in the U.S. in whatever form it is. And, and basically, the last thing I'll say about what I've learned about the history and when I was talking with a friend who grew up in Japan, when we were talking about Reiki, she was like, oh, what's that? And then she's like, oh, yeah, well, Reiki, the word in Japan, it means someone who is connected to the spirit world. So someone who has mm-hmm. a lot of Reiki like will be sensitive to spirits. And she talked about her friend when they were at the cemetery. The friend's like, I got to get out of here. And she's like, yeah, that friend has a lot of Reiki. We would say she has Reiki because she's connected to spirit world. And so even though the practice isn't considered by many people, whether in Japan or Japanese Americans in the United States, like considered Japanese or how it's been appropriated to the point that it's not considered Japanese anymore, it's cool that in Japan, it still has this sort of spiritual connotation of what, what is Reiki and how, for me, I mean, that was really special because Reiki was very much an opening for connecting more with my ancestors. And so I love that it was about spirit world because when I offer Reiki and when I receive Reiki, I feel very connected to spirits. Yeah, thanks for letting me share the story. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you told it because... I had no idea before you shared that with me that that was the way that Reiki, the story of Reiki has transformed and taken place. So it's really fascinating. And, and that kind of leads back to that thought I was having about a lot of times we don't even know we are appropriating spiritually from another culture. Yeah, It's like the history of that has just shown how removed and more removed it's gotten from the roots. And so much that the people at the Roots forgot. I can't remember people's names. Yeah, I know. This is my heritage. I'm like, I can't remember anyone's name. Well, yeah, I think that just also shows how complex it is and how how much information there is to know and to be kind to ourselves because we can't we can't always know it all. But I think what you said about having willingness to learn what's behind a practice or where it comes from is the most important aspect because we don't we don't know everything and we we, how could we I definitely don't and and also to be honest like part of my hesitation like I can see their first names in my mind and I think the woman's name is Hawaii if I'm not even sure and then the man's name Usui's first name I think is Mikau 
But part of my hesitation of even saying it out loud is because I don't know Japanese. And mm-hmm. I have this shame around not being able to pronounce my people's names. I feel like even to this day, even though like I've come a long way and I try not to internalize shame when people say, why don't you know Japanese? And I'm like, fourth generation, my family with their internment. Like, um, I sorry to like make the conversation so good and then like go to this like sad place. But I, I wanted to be real about. I don't experience that. I Yeah, I think it's really important to be real and yeah, bring these aspects up because that's part of that that sounds like a very interesting part of why it's hard to remember the names or that it's to take them in or to say them. I'm scared I'll pronounce them wrong. I don't know, unfortunately, that part of my heritage because so much of internment was about stopping language learning. And so much of becoming an American is stop about is you're supposed to become quote unquote American and not know the language of your people. Um, right. Right. That's a painful reality. Yeah. And that was the second part about appropriation I wanted to share about, you know, I hope that when we're all like learning from each other about like, well, what is appropriation? And like, how can, you know, I practice things in a way that is respectful. I think like having an understanding that everyone sort of comes to the table differently. Like sometimes when someone is learning a practice from their own heritage, how it's like I had to work through so many levels of unworthiness and shame that I would mess up Reiki or that. (laughs) But even now I was like, I'm telling the Reiki story wrong. (laughs) You know, like I feel like there's this added um, sort of burden um, of when something has been taken away and appropriated that when you're relearning it and reclaiming it and you're from it, there's this added layer of, trauma you have to work through in order to heal through. So I think that's a big piece around appropriation is how another group of people, if they take it from you and you're trying to relearn it from them, (laughs) usually how you have to work through so much shame um, in order to Mm. relearn who you are. Cause I, I, you know, before our conversation, I like really wanted to sort of like, well, what is appropriation? And, not just like the whole theoretical sort of in your head, what is appropriation? How does it feel in your body? What does it feel like? Like, it's not just about the intellectual. It's like about how it leaves people in their bodies at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's essential. I love that you brought, brought it back to that. Reiki helped me get into my body. So I think it's such a beautiful piece you're sharing here. It's so nuanced that the very practice that you wanted to learn that is rooted in your culture, you needed to work through some of the shame and the trauma that your people perhaps experienced and the people who carried Reiki through experienced perhaps. And the shame was still there. It was a way it sounds like a way back then that was helpful because people were getting hurt and killed for being connected with it and connected with Japanese culture and being Japanese. And so what what we can do when we appropriate, I think, is to turn away from the pain that is also associated with it or that came with the story. And what you've done is you've looked right at it 
And I also want to bring the other side of the coin in. I know I was saying when I'm approaching spiritual objects or practices, I was using the word caution and observation. I think observation is good for me, but I think caution might be necessary at times if there's a vibe from someone else of like, you need to really respect this, then I might feel more cautious, right? But I also want to bring in the the feel of a joyous exploration that learning about Mm. other people's spirituality or their ritual or ceremony, if you're invited in and welcome, then that can be such a joyous place that you, that I approach from. I love that. Yeah. And not caution, you know, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm going to tiptoe and step on eggshells, but it can be like, okay, let me see. Like I'm willing to learn and open. Yeah, I feel like that happens when I meet people who are like very much rooted in their practice and like know what's up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like getting to learn from people who are like really in their power with whatever practice and lineage they're a part of. Honestly, I'm like low key tearing up, like thinking about it. Like, I feel like when I see or experience someone who, is rooted in their heritage. Yeah, thank you for sharing that part too. Because I think that's the piece that's really important is when people invite you and welcome you and like, and you're in a respectful way, like learning from one another, like connecting spiritually with people is just, it's so, it feeds me in a way that the physical world doesn't. And it's so essential for like my humanity and like, feeling interconnected with people like really glad you brought that up because it is so beautiful like when you see someone who's in their power in their ancestors like just doing it right it's if i'm getting you right like from the feel of what you're saying and i'm gonna be using my own words here but it feels like a a radiance can shine from someone who's really in their roots and honoring all those who who came before them and who all those whose histories informed what they are able to offer as well and the gifts that they hold and and carry through. And that, that there's so much power to honoring everyone behind that picture and not just the one person or the the practice itself, but who's yeah. all contributed that there's a, an ancient radiance that gets passed along. You can feel it and you see it. You just see it on someone's face. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So we're getting close to the end. Is there yeah. anything else? I know there's a lot to share, but I wonder for today. You know, it's funny, the activity that I learned in Asian American studies class my professor of that class, Dr. Wong taught me, take a quarter and like put it on one of your eyes. And then you like close the other eye. And she was like, when money is the focus of your life, this is what you see. And she's like, slowly move that coin away from your eye. Yeah. And she's like, see how the whole world opens up when it, when you're less focused on that coin. Yeah. And it was like, wow, Mm. like, I just love that. And so, you know, when I shared Dr. Wong's story with Uncle Fred at at Fonz, the Filipino society, he was like, 
he shared something with me that I'm just remembering now as I'm sharing the quarter story. He said, stare at one of the corners in the room. I'm like, okay. So I'm like staring. And he was like, now take a step back. And I'm like, okay. And so he's like, keep walking backwards. And I'm like, okay. Like what? (laughs) And he's like, see how there are walls and a ceiling now. See how there are other corners in the room. He's like, when you're focused, because I think I was like talking about growing up super conservative Catholic. He was a very progressive Catholic. And so it was really healing being mentored by him um, for that reason. And so basically he was like, when you think of your ways are the only ways, it's like you only see a corner of the room. And then he's like, when you like expand, you just see that there's like this whole room. It's just not the corner and that you need all of the corners to make a room work. Essentially, he was just saying we're all interconnected and we all, all of our beliefs are part of like the human experience, basically. Yeah, I'm literally just remembering that metaphor now. And it's funny because another teacher, her name is Dr. Bridges. She was the one to teach me. She taught a theology class I was in at school. And she said that like, she always talked about truth was small t's instead of a big t and how all the small t truths are like ways people search for a big t truth in a sense. And yeah, I feel like all those three metaphors sort of like guided me my sophomore year when I was sort of like seeking something that wasn't what I grew up with. Mm. And what was funny is that by the end of the school year, I came out as gay and it like, I feel like being trans and being queer is so spiritual for me because it's, it's like really knowing myself. And I think, you know, when we talk about meditation, it's always about like, you know, get into stillness, the quietness, know yourself and like being queer and like my gender and my sexuality, like it's knowing myself and like being really clear on it. Even when society is telling me that it's not normal being like, this is who I am and it's spiritual for me. And yeah, yeah. The last thing I'll say, cause I know we're out of time. So for me, like what I love doing with clients is like, you know, how can I know myself better? How can I be more connected to my heritage, future generations, all of that good stuff. And I think like one thing that's helped me over the years of like recording my family stories like if you really want to know your family story like either cook with your family because a Hmm. lot of things will come out when you're making food or have someone else interview them i know that sounds weird but it's like i got lucky that my family recorded a lot of their stories on this like archival digital website called densho um it's like they collect all these japanese american stories around internment Oftentimes, your family will only share certain things because they want to protect you. If you really want to know the true details, if your family is open to it, maybe they need to talk to one of your friends or like a third party or whatever and like record it because they will share things that they will not share with you because they want to protect you from the ugly reality of what they lived. If they lived through like ugly realities, you know what I mean? That is so interesting. Yeah. That is something that I definitely learned that was like, whoa, like my family really opened up about their traumas to these strangers interested in their story because 
they never told me that because I'm the grandbaby. Why would they tell me that they want to protect me? So that's something I learned. Like if you're interested in your family story, sometimes it's better to have someone else interview them is a big thing. Yeah. And that sort of witness from the outside can bring extra witness. Yes. That opens up different parts of the story. Yes. But that's really such a good point. An interesting point about having someone else interview your family members. Yeah. If silence was the way we survived, then we would pass down silence. When I do family constellations work, um, one-on-one and in a group, it's often that because there's an element of unfamiliarity with the people around you that gives way for something different and more, sometimes more. And so it's, I can see the power of that. And also I want to integrate what I got from you about the corners of the room, that metaphor. It brings me back around to the idea that we have our view and we have learned this one way of life. But in order to see a full picture, we need other people's pictures as well to put all the pieces together. We just can't possibly see it all. Or at least I don't I don't know that experience of seeing it all. So it's helping us whenever we bring in another person in the fold in our awareness. If we can see another person, we can see another part of that larger truth. So thanks for sharing that picture. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean those three metaphors about money and truth and interconnectedness of all people. Like, yeah, that was such a transformative year of my life. Yeah. I feel so grateful for all of those mentors. I wouldn't be me without them. It's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing today, Hiroki. I learned so much. Oh my God. No, thank you for sharing everything you shared. I was worried. I was like, am I talking too much? Because, you know, it's like the guest should talk, but I was like, (laughs) I don't know, it should be more conversation. So, no, I'm, yeah, thank you for sharing everything you shared. When I experience people talking for a broader picture of people, I, I, it doesn't fit well with me because. I think when you say, I'm just sharing my story and my experience and my part of the picture, that it feels like that's the way I'm most comfortable doing it too, because I can't really speak for anyone else and it's not my place. And it really feels grounding when you speak from that place. It does. And I mean, so much of colonialism and all of that is like speaking for other people, writing about other people not listening to them. So it, it it's like when we speak from ourselves, yeah, it's like such a relief to just be and to share and to not have someone like interrupt or speak for you. It's yeah, it's you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Until next time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Hiroki and me. I appreciate you being out there and tuning in. I learned a lot from this conversation and that's one of the best things about doing podcasts with people is that it's not exactly just an interview. It's more so a conversation that can create an alchemy of 
new ideas and inspiration, new awareness for both me and the person that's on the show. So I hope that you're getting something out of it as well. What I love about Hiroki is how understanding, compassionate, as well as honoring they are. If you want to get in touch with Hiroki or learn about their services, you can find them at dragonflyintergenerationalhealing.com. If these episodes inspire you and you want more, check it out at candacewu.com slash podcast or go to my Patreon site at candacewu.com slash Patreon to become a supporter. I'd love to give you my updates in my bi-monthly newsletter. So if you'd like to hear from me or connect up with the Embody community on Facebook, go to candacewu.com slash Embody. Take care and see you all next time on the Embody podcast. <laughs>